Welcome to the Oral Traditions Show on WCRX-FM. I am Robert Hanser, Associate Professor of Humanities, History, and Social Sciences at Columbia College, Chicago. In this series, students from the Department of Communications Spring 2023 Oral Traditions class explore West African cultures and the African diaspora. Jazz originated in African-American communities as a means of expression. In this episode, students speak with musicians and experts of Chicago's rich jazz scene and discuss topics from the birth of the free jazz movement to the modern artists who are pushing the boundaries of the genre. everybody, and welcome to this episode of Columbia College Chicago's Collective Impact Series, a provost initiative that addresses community engagement and social justice and art making. This episode is put on as part of our oral traditions class. Thanks for tuning in. We're your hosts, Avery Herringa, Caroline Moore, and Tatiana Santiago. And today we are exploring the music in Chicago, specifically history and impact of Chicago blues and jazz, along with the role of local organizations like the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians and the Art Ensemble of Chicago. The Chicago music scene is one with rich history and has produced countless forces in the industry, such as Chance the Rapper, Jennifer Houston, and Earth, Wind and Fire. But for today, we're going to be looking at a style of music known as free jazz and speaking with two of the people keeping the scene online, Kevin Bouchamp and Prius Roy. Free jazz is a musical genre that is loose in structure and sometimes improvised. The sound of free jazz can be thought of as adjacent to psychedelic soul, experimental rock, and noise rock. It's a musically open-minded genre that continues to prosper in a contemporary sense. An example of an early avant-garde jazz singer is Nina Simone, who added a unique impression on the genre through her lyricism atop of her instrumentals. Another artist recognized in the free jazz sphere is Sun Ra, known for his experimental music and philosophy. One of the most impactful music organizations in Chicago is the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, or the AACM. The AACM is a nonprofit organization founded in 1965, founded by Mahal Richard Abrams, Jody Christensen, Steve McCall, and Phil Kuhran. The AACM supports and encourages jazz performers, composers, and educators, and provides performance opportunities and music education to the community. Members have ventured from performing avant-garde jazz to classical music to world music. The Art Ensemble of Chicago, or the AEC, is an avant-garde jazz group that grew out of the AACM in the late 1960s. The AEC is notable for its integration of various jazz styles and little instruments like bicycle horns, birthday party noisemakers, wind chimes, and a variety of percussion instruments. Another characteristic of the AEC is their eccentric performative nature, including costumes and face paint. All these aspects combine to make the ensemble's performances a visual spectacle along with an auditory one. For some greater background, from the 1940s to the 1960s, the Great Migration brought hundreds of thousands of African Americans from the segregated South to Chicago in search of economic opportunities and a better quality of life. With this migration, they brought blues music and traditional jazz to the city, sparking a musical renaissance and resulting in the development of Chicago blues and Chicago-style jazz. In 1953, a record label named VJ Records was established in Chicago and became one of the earliest African American-owned record companies. VJ discovered and exposed incredible artists into the world, such as Jimmy Reed, Memphis Slim, and the Dells. 
The label was also the first to nationally issue a record by The Pips, which eventually became Gladys Knight and The Pips in 1962. The work done by VG Records undoubtedly helped put the movement into action. Venues and lounges such as Constellation, The Beat Kitchen, The California Clipper, and Kevin's Own Catalyst are contemporary venues in Chicago that continue to keep the music scene alive. Longtime Chicago resident Kevin Bouchamp is the owner of Catalyst Music Gallery and Coffee Shop, located in the south side of Chicago. He has a background working and touring with the Art Ensemble of Chicago along with producing his own recordings and developing his own label. Prius Roy is one of these artists keeping the music alive within the industry. Thank you guys so much for being here, Kevin and Prius. And to kick things off, I'm wondering if you guys could describe your interest and passion for music and particularly how free jazz you know, came into your interest. It, music was always a part of, of my family, my upbringing and whatnot. You know, um, my mother was a big collector of music. My father was a, uh, a singer. My stepfather then, afterwards a blues musician and whatnot. So I was exposed to a lot of music from a child. And uh, as I was growing up, I started, uh, you know, developing my own tastes, um, which were, were vast as well. Uh, I do recall seeing the art ensemble, you know, as a child and all of that because they were friends of my uh, my stepfather's, and it was like kind of like a fa family atmosphere. So I kind of understood music uh, in a different kind of way. Uh, as I was uh, kind of in my formative years, as in high school and whatnot, I was DJing. I got into a lot of house music and in Chicago, right? And then I, I started working for A&M Records out in LA and uh, ranged from all over the, the spectrum, not so much free jazz at that time. And that led into another job in the music industry proper, you might say, uh, at Polygram, uh, which brought me back to Chicago. Now, uh, after working with them and uh, dealing with a lot of different music, classical and rock, country, jazz. I started to wanting to produce uh, my uh, recordings with my peers mostly. And uh, when I left Polygram, I started my own label producing hip hop records and I also started working with the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Now mind you, I'd heard records and such like that and I remember some of the performances when I was young, but you know, hadn't really grasped, say, the, the, the free music thing as, as as much, but it was peculiar to me in the rehearsals before the first tour I went on with them. You know, they would practice a lot of rudimentary things, right? Like scales, and and they would run through a few tunes, and and then you know it was interesting and all, and I I, I uh, was just absorbing a lot of information at that time. But the first concert, when it was real time, right? When they're on the stage, there's the, this is the performance, right? And Roscoe Mitchell took that first solo. Kind of. Now, I already had a pretty wide range of understanding of music, but it opened up a whole new wing of, of understanding of music, a way to think about it. You know, it was, it, this was not playing around anymore. This was something that was, it, it kind of clicked. I said, oh, that's what it's about. You know, this is about 
It's about the, the energy, you know, the, the mode, you know, and, and how it moves. And, and, you know, to put in context of the performance as a whole, particularly the art ensemble, I've seen a lot of different free jazz artists and whatnot, but in ter terms of their performance, and that's the best reference I've had, because that's something that I've lived with for, for many years. Uh, it's like a ride of sorts, you know, and everyone is different. Everybody goes through so many different things. It's uh, uh, So it kind of puts music, as far as performance, into a whole other context uh, than the traditional, say, pop music, radio, you know, programming, genre-type thing. This was like all that and more, and it kind of takes on a different meaning. But that's my own kind of approach to that question. Freyas might have his own experience with uh, how free jazz kind of opened him up. Yeah, so um, I started playing free jazz uh, with a uh, vocalist named Salik Ziad. He's the first musician that I played with that uh, that sort of uh, you know incorporated completely free improvisation into his into his performances. So uh, through him, I met a lot of other musicians in Chicago that also incorporated a lot of free improvisation into into their playing and uh, as it happened you know most of them were members of the ACM most of them were um, people that uh, that played at the, the Velvet Lounge it was um, Fred Anderson's uh, club and uh, you know that was a that was a huge uh, a huge part of the you know history of this music and um, it really kind of brought me into the to this sort of wholeheartedly as I started studying with a, a drummer by the name of Vincent Davis and um, Vincent has worked with uh, Roscoe Mitchell for almost 40 years now and uh, he's a uh, mentor to a lot of uh, the last couple of generations of free jazz players coming out of Chicago um, uh, so yeah so I've been uh, I've been studying with him forever and, and playing with the, uh, the musicians and his sort of Orbit for a long time, and uh, and uh, that's sort of that's sort of where I fit into all this. And uh, I just you know, um, once I sort of adopted free improvisation as a practice, it's uh, it's very hard to let go of. You know, it's not that it's all that I do, but it's a huge part of what I do. You mentioned a few artists that have inspired and mentored you guys. Um, was there a certain artist or piece of music that you cite in your exposure to music and your passion for music? Like a certain artist, either free jazz or just in general? I mean, for me, it was, uh, it was uh, John Coltrane. First time I heard of Love Supreme, it uh, sort of just blew my mind as far as, you know, what a piece of music could be and what it could do. I think that uh, primed me to be ready for these kind of uh, these kinds of ideas about how to make music. You mm -hmm. know. One piece of music that inspired me from a young age, and uh, you know that I would come back to and 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 realize the impact of music on on me as far as in particular in the world in general is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Mother, mother, there's too many of you that kind of got me into music as a child, later on as an adolescent. And I was you I remember using that, exposing others to that, you know, in high school and they were 
blowing people's minds. It also got me excited to show other people music, right? Marvin Gaye, what's going on? There's a lot of uh, other musical elements that are not just what you what you might hear on the radio as well. You mm-hmm. know, other other pieces as well. But that was probably what inspired me to start. You know, initially and and few times over. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a perfect example. Yeah, thank you. And then, Kevin, you did mention the AEC at one point going to see them. Can you sum up the role that the organization has had or even the AACM has had within Chicago music scene? Well, what I was talking about was my first uh, tour working for them. I was working uh, on the road with them for a tour. What you have to remember is the AACM, when they started, and I was not there, but, uh, um, you know, they they were really trying to offer the a different way of, of approaching not only music life and, and whatnot to particularly black youth they had their own school they were they were teaching some other things this is back in the 60s a lot of civil rights stuff a lot of a lot of different things and they were you know kind of providing a, a very positive and thing for weird people it was more claiming uh, some independence from a lot of the standard music practices that were going on that kind of kept musicians maybe in a box a little bit. Muhal was, you know, one of the main teachers of, of, of everybody and, and encouraged the, them to write their own and, and, and everybody to play each other's music and, and just a different approach. And I think that the AAC, the AEC coming out of that and going over to Europe and getting putting that whole movement on a little giving it a little bit more exposure right made it even more powerful right and 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 allowed them to build and allowed other musicians out of there to to grow and 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 start getting notoriety and and better gigs more money more start building their own things you know so it's just incredible when you consider what came out of the AACM it's also concrete members of the of the AACM of all generations directly work with and mentor younger musicians and and that's that's the main thread is like is like one-on-one master and apprentice you know what i mean like it's it's intense uh, yeah that's what that's what that's what keeps that's what keeps it alive and that's what makes this the chicago scene in particular special and what the acm sort of provides a, a framework that that uh, that allows that to happen and it, it, it's it provides kind of a mission for a lot of a lot of the members of it you know i mean i uh all of my teachers for the last 15 years have been members of the AACM and, and, and they, they participate in that tradition and, you know, I've, I've personally benefited from it tremendously, you know. This question's for Kevin. Could you uh, tell us about your business, The Catalyst, what it is and how it came about? I mentioned earlier my, my life in the music business and whatnot and when I kind of uh, had um, departed from working for major labels because I had aspirations to... to get more on the creative side of things, right? I, uh, I created my own label called Catalyst Entertainment. Catalyst Entertainment was about building in Chicago because what was happening in the music community, they would pluck our artists, take them to L.A. or take them to New York. And it wasn't about, uh, and it was about not building anything here. Not only the artists themselves, but the business, the the. The people like me, they that do all the stuff, the studios. It was about putting our people to work. It was the same kind of concept as AACM, as having you know control. Now that used to happen back in the seventies. You had Mercury, he was here, and you had 
I mean, of course, chess and all that, but something in the dynamic about Chicago, and I, I, I put it into an economic standpoint for black music in particular. You got a lot of black economic base here that, that doesn't necessarily succumb to the same kind of controls that, that might happen in L.A. or New York. So there's a certain freedom here, which might also explain why it, the music has a certain freedom. Because the mm. black experience here is not necessarily without its own power, right? We could debate about a lot of that stuff, but that's my own theory. So starting the label and wanting to put our, our people to work here and grow our talent here, that was the idea. So anyway, I was coming back to Chicago, found a building that, that fit the requirements, and I proceeded to chip away and make it happen. And then... First thing I had to do was have uh, I was having a, I had a private session, you know, to kind of fill fill the room with music and, and spirit, and that that set the tone. That was before I opened. That was just for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, but anyway, so that's how that whole thing started or came to be, not started. And this is now a question for both you guys. I believe Kevin, you mentioned an example of how the AACM obviously started in Chicago, but branched out, and some of the original players moved out to places like New York. I'm interested to hear from both of you about what you think keeps the Chicago scene specifically vibrant and alive compared to other other music scenes around the country. I can't. I mean, I can't speak to this too too well because I don't. I haven't worked in a lot of other a lot of other cities. I don't know the scenes in in a lot of other places in the country that well. But I will say that you know one of the things that I really enjoy about this particular part of of, uh, of the Chicago scene is. Uh, is just the um, the kind of familial nature of it. You know what I mean? It's uh, uh, everybody's like kind of just you know very enlightened about the fact that it's like an entire human experience. It's not just you know this like mercenary professional thing, and uh, you know that that has uh, that has a lot of uh, that has a lot of benefits. You know for for uh, for the community as a whole, for the music in particular. You know, yeah. so. I think that uh, depending on what instrument it is, there might be some mercenary elements here and there. <laughs> but one of the things I think is special about Chicago, again, is, is that, that experience for black people coming from a place where black people have power, mm -hmm. you know, for generations. It's not nothing new here, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that creates another kind of platform for freedom that we get out of Chicago, you might not get in some scenes, you know, instead of trying to subscribe to whatever it is, not our own, you deal with it, but you know, it's kind of just about ownership of, of space, time, music, et cetera, resources, you know, to try to do your own thing regardless, kind of like what I decided to do, kind of like what the ACM, ACM decided to do. We don't need permission to do, you know, we, 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 we can do this, mm -hmm. you know, we regardless. So, uh, I think just that spirit. That's a great way to put yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> and then we talked a lot about the past, the history of the Chicago music scene. We talked about, a lot about what's going on today. What are you, both your opinions, your hopes for the future? I, I don't know. The industry is going through so many. I don't even know. I've seen so many different changes. You know, now with so many things, you know, being media itself and how it's manipulated and all of that stuff is... It's just a bit of a, a overload, so I, could, I, I am concerned. That's why I think that live music is undeniable, and that's, the, that's, that's pure nutrition, right? You know, mm -hmm. 
you get that, that's going to separate what music is in someone's life, right? Because mm-hmm. now it's just, you know, everybody's walking around their own little thing. They got their own little da-da-da, but it's not the same or just not used. To, it's not, not taken in the same. You have to have that communal experience, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I think you have to be in the room to be a part of that. And I think that once people, humans, right, start realizing that, then it'll reevaluate, revalue what mm-hmm. that is. Because what this does, when I point to this, I'm pointing to a computer, right? It kind of tries to take the value out of it, right? By the, the pure volume and pure accessibility. But that that live experience, you don't have that. You, you have to you have to be there for that, mm-hmm. you know. And what that does for people and what it the the that's going to be the triumph for music, you know. Uh, yeah, you. I mean, the mediums for you know business and yeah, okay, I produce records, but but that's a vehicle to get people to this instead of the other way around, which it was kind of being used for. I I completely agree with the uh, with the live music uh, thing, you know, and and uh, and that you know that's going to take that's going to take some of a cultural shift as well, you know, um, and that you know that isn't something that happens on an everywhere all at once scale. That's something that happens, you know, in a community. There's uh, there's examples of, of neighborhoods where there's a strong culture of people going out to to listen to music. There's there's examples of venues that have a strong you know a strong uh, following. But like you know, the, I I would like to see the culture of going to see live music grow, and I think that uh, that one of the things that can really help with that is um, so. There's, I mean, there's a couple things. You know, public investment helps tremendously. The more money gets put into the arts, the more arts there are. The more publicly funded performances there are, the better. You know, uh, um, if people are not. Uh, currently aware that they might enjoy spending their own money to go see live music you know seeing a free show in the park might change that change that mentality mm. for them you know that's one major part of that cultural shift another major part of that cultural shift is that uh, we need music education back in schools one of the reasons that uh, that there was such a massive mind-blowing expansion of music in in America in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is that kids grew up with music education. You know, they had a music class in school. Um, it's been a long time since music classes were mandated in the majority of schools, you know, and um, there's a definite negative <coughs> impact on listenership overall and the respect for music in general, you know. Um, if you don't have the live experience growing up, there's nothing that makes it valuable when you're an adult. Mm-hmm. That's a good point about about the schools and, and what that does in the development of people, right? You know, we go socially for a second. We talk about the kids, right, and all the crazy stuff they're doing. You know, it affects all that because it, it, it's all connected, you know. creates a different type of uh, approach to, to music and, and the world in general. You know, I just thought of that as you were saying it and, and, and the meaning that that has. I didn't realize that... You said uh, mandated. I said, was there a mandate for music in, in schools at some point? I, I don't never. Know, I don't know if it was know. a mandate, yeah. but I do know that it was a lot more. Common, well, that's that's pretty you know? pretty. Uh, we need to mandate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think unfortunately the the music and the art programs are always the first ones to go. So um, I definitely I definitely hear that. So we have one last question. Um, For those just discovering the genre and getting into the jazz scene, who are a few essential artists that you recommend listening to? 
or places to go see the music. Yeah. yeah. The Catalyst. Yeah, but besides Catalyst, for sure. <laughs> All right. That's so, a given. Um, so uh, now jazz in general or avant-garde jazz in particular? Avant-garde jazz. Avant-garde jazz in particular. Sun Ra, I would say the art ensemble. Eric Dolphy, Ornette Coleman. I would say uh, uh, Cecil Taylor. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> that's a, it's a broad question. Uh, Pharaoh Sanders is another big one. So many now as somebody that turns people on to music a lot right and i have to sometimes create you know consider my audience mm-hmm. right there's a lot of examples of, of tunes that are you know teetering on on the out that you can you can you know feed them you know f- at first to get like like uh love supreme max roach it's time you know <laughs> eddie, harris. eddie harris yeah listen here you know that's another chicago guy eddie harris you know there's a there's certain classic records that that dance around all of that right so i think that uh uh it just depends on on the audience in particular and you got to see where they're what they are grabbing on to already i think that for younger people right they need to start where they're at you know there's some younger people now kamasi washington or Makaya, McCraven, you know, that are user friendly in a certain sense, that, that that speak their language, but also speak the other language or bridges to really, you know, going a little bit deeper, you know. What works for one might work for, might not work for the other. I mean, and then you find that you know, your own. A lot of the younger generation of, of players, they're they're kind of uh taking inspiration from you know, the same the same way as is the tradition in this music is, you know, taking inspiration from what they hear everywhere you know and um, whatever uh, your tastes are there's someone in the music right now that kind of does that with an out twist to it you know um, there's a, a heavy metal avant-garde group that's actually Craig oh, Table, Craig Table right, right. right. There's a lot that bridges sort of the house music side of things. There's a lot that bridges the hip hop side of things. There's um, there's obviously plenty that bridges the jazz side of things, and then different styles of world music. You know, there's uh, there's artists in in this scene that are exploring you know Middle Eastern or North African styles. There's uh, there's artists that are that are exploring uh, uh, you know Caribbean styles. Artists that are exploring Brazilian styles and sort of and sort of drawing from all of that. Even even the, uh, the Asian stuff. Is, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of avant-garde stuff yeah. coming out of Tokyo yeah. and and uh, uh, Seoul. Yeah. You know. Kevin, Prius, thank you so much for coming in and get, you. giving your time to talk to us today. Any events happening at the Catalyst that we should know about? Every Monday, up? every Monday, <laughs> every Monday at the Catalyst. Uh, uh, it's Prius Roy, Micah Collier, and uh, special guest Vincent Davis for the most part. Justin Dillard also has been a constant uh, fixture. Also um, on Sundays, Kari Lemuel does uh, a thing. I got some 
local uh, rock bands coming up, Skyway Stereo, another one. Uh, first Saturday of every month is uh, house music, you know, that mm -hmm. we spin. Myself and some of my DJ friends, a guy named Doc Brucio, Shahid Mustaf. Second Saturday is like usually the rock thing. Third Saturday is reggae. Microphone Bill, Bill does his set. And then King George does a, a kind of rock and soul broadcast out of there on the, the fourth Saturday. So whole variety yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, all around the spectrum. We do some. So I want to get our re-back. I'm working on that. More and more and more. But, uh, you know, check in. For sure. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Praise, if you wouldn't mind playing a little bit sure. just for us, right. just for a little outro. Outro. Intro, outro. Yeah. <laughs> Students Avery, Caroline, and Tatiana speaking with vibraphonist Preyus Roy and Chicago club owner Kevin Beauchamp about the Chicago jazz scene. Thank you for listening to the Oral Traditions Show. In this series, students explore West African cultures and the African-American diaspora. I'm Robert Hansard, Associate Professor of Humanities, History, and Social Sciences at Columbia College, Chicago. Sydney, Nakil, Indy, Samantha, and Aaliyah Students from the Oral Traditions class speak about what fashion means to them. My favorite thing about fashion is the creativity and expression that comes with the culture. My favorite thing about fashion is the expression uh, that people put forth into it. So, My favorite thing about fashion is that you can really get to know yourself through it. My favorite thing about fashion is the colors that you can like match together and how boldly that you want to look. And I think my favorite thing about fashion is definitely the ability to be experimental. The whole world is kind of your oyster and you can really elevate things even if they're simple. We continue the show by exploring the fashions of West Africa with international designer and philanthropist Haj Gaye. Haj goes into his formative experiences in fashion, the mission of his brand, and fashion as a means of storytelling. So Haj, tell us more about yourself, your past, and some of your favorite things about fashion. Hello everyone. My name is El Haj Gay from Senegal, West Africa. Third generation tailor and a designer. Well, fashion, it is my passion. I was born in the fashion. I would say that fashion chose me. I didn't choose it which is really wonderful thing. I grew up in my father's shop. At the time, he was dressing a lot of uh, West African president. At that time, we were in Niger, uh, dressing the president of Niger called Sidney Quinche. This is in the early 80s, late 70s. I grew up in the shop uh, where my dad cutting and sewing I'm crawling all over the, you know, machines and stuff. So, you know, and grew up, growing up and started making clothes for myself in the age of eight. So uh, that's all I ever done. That's all I ever known in, 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 in fashion. And uh, basically throughout our house, you know, we all dress up. We all love clothes. We all really 
It's in our DNA, I would say, because my sisters and brothers, you know, when we get up in the morning, we pretty much everybody dress up. People used to think, like, where the heck these folks? People are going. We weren't going nowhere. But my dad was always saying that uh, this is not what we do. This is who we are, you know. So with us growing up and having our grandfather doing it then, my dad doing it. And uh, so it was pretty much what we was around the fashion all the time, you know. So this is uh, something that uh, I love doing outside of sport. My second passion is sport, you know, working out and all that. But the first passion is definitely, you know, able to take a piece of cloth, piece of fabric, and turning it to something that is magical, you know. I wish fashion was in my DNA, if I'm being honest. (laughs) I would say that it's really insightful that you have that. And next, we're going to be talking about a couple of readings we had. So one of the readings we had is called Out of Africa, Cuba Fabrics That Dazzle and Teach by Joyce Beckenstein, which is basically this museum that they have. So, Indy, do you want to kick this off for us? Yeah, so the first reading, we wanted to relate to a question for you, and that is, how do you think fashion connects to storytelling? It's definitely a storytelling itself, because fashion is an art, just like there's an art of dancing, there's an art of painting. Tell me what is more artistic than taking a piece of cloth turning it to something that you can wear. And when you create that clothing, the clothing has energy. Why? Because when you put it on, you're happy about yourself, the way you look. And when you step out, you make people happy about the way you look. That is art. It's not considered as an art like some of these art, you know, uh, that people selling, but I mean, this is true art because it's covering our body, not only cover our body, but makes us feel good, makes us look good. It's telling your story. Somebody basically can tell your story by the way you look because you're making them happy by wearing this phenomenal clothes on in your body. So it's really decorating yourself. Yeah. In the reading, it mentioned how clothing was crucial to understanding how the colonization happened in Congo. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I would say in Africa, period, our ancestor was one of the best dressers. I would say that uh, a true dressing to empress originated in Africa. So the Congolese, where you see some of these guys, they are living. I mean, you see them in the dump in the middle of the trash, but they look like a million dollars. I forgot what they called themselves, uh, the the supper in French, the dressers. Until this day, you will go to Kinshasa, you will see some of these guys, they might not have a nothing, really. They might be living in a, a tent, but whenever they step out of the tent, you think they're living in a... Why? Because we value presence. That is some of the most important things in the human beings because when you meet someone, they see you. So what impact would you want to have to anyone you come in contact with for the first time? That's one thing that some of the Congolese, I would say the Africans, 
But the Congolese are the ones that really take it to an extreme. I feel like when we were looking at some of the things with, you know, African clothing, we didn't get to see a lot of them, but we could tell there was always like very geometric shapes. There was always very colorful patterns. So I think you reciting that is really important for people to hear about. So in the next reading called Fashion, Anti-Fashion, and Heteroglossia in Urban Senegal by Deborah Heath, we are going to be talking about different things that we found interesting. So for me, I had two points that I thought were super interesting. A lot of the women had these things called shake and sell. So basically they would have like these fabrics and a lot of these fabrics would be something that they would get from like the markets they had or clothing that people already wore. And they would basically like kind of sew them together. And what it really reminded me of was like kind of like going to La Pulga or for those of you that don't know, it's like going to like the flea market. You see a bunch of like graphic designers doing things. You see a bunch of people like I got this top. I know our viewers can't see it, but there's like a lot of embroidery on here. Um, and it's basically a lot of sunflowers. And a lot of the times I know for like indigenous people within what is today considered Latin America, they were very inspired by nature. So I feel like that really plays off into how different cultures are able to tell a lot about themselves. And then the second point that I found in my reading that was really interesting was the beko. These women basically had like these different types of stitching that were either very like sexual in imagery or kind of were humorous. But one thing that stood out to me, a lot of the women that were dancers, they would kind of show them off when they were dancing. So it adds into not only their humor, but it adds into like enhancing that performance. I feel like a similarity is kind of like with folklorico. Like if people have seen a lot of like the folkloric dances within Mexico that is very similar or all throughout Latin America. I know because that's mostly where my family is from. But the dancers kind of showing off the stitching kind of shows off their humor. Some people also give it as presents with the beko. So I think a lot with having these readings, it's really nice to see. But sometimes we don't always get that cultural aspect. So I think that's really awesome that we kind of get to hear about it from Haj, who has a lot of knowledge on that. That is absolutely beautiful, you know. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so another section of our reading covered the culture of Sansei, which is almost a representation of money and wealth for the country, where citizens come and show off what they own, essentially. So this could be comparable to the Met Gala in a lot of American culture. I love what you were talking about in comparison for your culture. So that's kind of what in America I think that we do as of now. Nikhil, can you continue on with the discussion? One thing that I definitely want to talk about as far as the world of culture is that I definitely want to give my flowers to the women of that culture because they put a lot of effort in when it comes to the sansei. And I think Sam could definitely touch on the Sansei a little more. But just how much effort that they put in um, as far as, like, the gift-giving and the dancing and putting the certain pieces of fabrics together to make art as uh, high says all the time. I think it's a beautiful thing, and I feel like they definitely should get the credit that they deserve. Yeah, going off of that, my section mainly talked about Sansei and the definition, which means dressing well or dressing up. Um, it talked about the events that they would used to Sansei just to dress up and like how someone said to show off their wealth. So Haj, how would you say that Sansei connects with the things that you make now? Sansei connect with because you touch about things we do with our hand. 
that is where the culture of fashion coming from. When you hear about handmade, handmade, even if you get the handmade suit, it is one of the most expensive suits than, you know, uh, some of these suits that manufacture from a machine. Because back in the day, everything was done by hand. Like handcrafted to craft perfect precision, like a, you know, pinpoint. So Sansei is part of the work with your bare hand. Africa, one thing we still value, one thing that's still our culture that uh, uh, still maintain today is work with our hand. And our woman take the culture that our ancestors have, which is always to glorify themselves. It's always how they can decorate themselves. Here they don't think about it that way, but it's more like how you decorate your room. Some people more concerned about dressing up the house and they, you know, mention, but not themselves. But it all started out with you. Because, for an example, I'm going to go offline a little bit. You will see people will spend 100000 or a couple hundred thousand on their cars. But they don't spend that much money in their clothes. But guess what? When they travel for a business anywhere in the world or in the country, where is their car? That's going too far. I am here in the building, right? Where's my car? Who knows that I have a car? What's the point I'm trying to make here is presence. Presence, I'm here. So what is the most value? It is what we put on our body, you know? And that is something we have learned in Africa, in our culture, and we embed embedding that to our generation. That's why in Africa you see some of the things you're talking about. You know, we have certain garment that we wear, the African garment, have the embroidery, you know. That's what you see a lot of these Senegalese women are wearing, you know. Why? Because this is our traditional. That's a it's a it's a royalty to 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 wear those garments and to look like that. Our ancestors were wearing it, and now we are pushing that on our next generation to wear, even though right now uh, some of these major brands called they the fashion, really the fashion is in Europe. Well, it is. Yeah, they glorify fashion in their way, but the fashion really started out and still remain in Africa. And if you go some of these major brands in manufacturing, in day shop where the clothes are manufactured in Europe, you're going to find a lot of African, particularly Senegalese. Senegal is pretty much the Italy or Paris of West Africa when it comes to fashion. For me right now, I feel sometimes I'd be dressing kind of sluggish or in baggier clothing. But now that it's getting hotter, I feel like there's a lot more to experiment with. But now we're going to move on to some more personal questions for Haj. Could you explain to us what material you're wearing right now? I know like some fashion students will be listening to this and could probably relate more to you in terms of different terminology on the clothes that you're wearing right now. I have on merino wool, but bland with silk. So this is pretty much a very lightweight. This is 6.5 ounces. So it's a summer material. This fabric it was particularly made from the warm climate, such as Arizona, Miami, 
but uh, I particularly purchased this for some of my clients in Dubai that I, you know, dress uh, because it's so hot there. So this suit is half lining. So it's just the front where the canvas, uh, the full canvas is. Uh, that's the only part that we line. Everything else we did not line only because we want when you wear it, it's breathable. And not only is breathable, it does not wrinkle. And not only that, it does not keep order. It's a blend, you know. I'm only dealing with some of the high-end fabric. I had a quick question for you, actually, sure. and I think we talked about this last time we spoke. Mm-hmm. How would you define your specific brand, and what goals are you trying to reach with your brand? I define my brand to be unique, and it's not for everybody. I am getting to the point to make it available for everybody. But for the last 30 years, it has been really focusing on the elite because I am constructing my garment to compete with the Brionis, with the Tom Ford, the Amanis. When my garment is taken to a Brioni store, I don't want them to be able to have any critique in it. So for the last 30 years, it has been select only for the elite, the one percenter you know, artillery's entertainers and executives, but that's not sustainable because it was just for the special people. My goal now for my brand is to get it to be international, to be global brand. It has been, I just has been doing it quietly, but not making it available for, you know, everybody because it's been only selected for a certain individual, I work with my client one-on-one, you know, for the last 30 years. And now that uh, everybody's designing, some of the people who's not even in the business are able to do some significant work, you know, of, you know, dressing the masses. So my main focus right now is really to uh, advertise the brand and creating something for everybody. And where the differentiating part here is, I don't just make the clothes and sell to the person, no. Basically, each individual, we make any article of clothing, we customize it for you. Not only customize it, but we're building you a personal brand for you, only for you. What they say, what people call stylish, you know, we're styling it for the person. No, we're branding our clients. And right now, the goal of our brand is how can we brand the masses? Not just go online and punch a button, you know, click a button and buy the clothes. No, we want to know who are you? What do you do? What makes you come and want to buy this clothes, you know? Why we ask this question? Because we want to get the inner you and match it with the outside. So we want to create the clothes that goes with your personality and represent you. Yeah. Yes. I think that's very um, respectable because not many people really care as much as your brand does. And I think that's a great thing that you're, that you're definitely doing for your brand. And not only that, we, 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 we add the philanthropy part. You know, I have been giving away clothes to some interns and right here US and Africa 34,000 clothes that I have given away for men and women and you know some of these convict get out of jail 
trying to get a better life, you know, have really made a change to really be somebody in their life, you know, because they pay the price. Now they want to get into society. And when they ready to take on that path, they don't have the money to, to get a decent clothes. Not only we give them the clothes, we tailor the clothes for them to, you know, give them another hope for life when they go out there. Some of these students that we dress, that some of their parents cannot afford to buy them a suit when they graduate. We bring them in, we give them a suit, and we cut it. We treat them like we treat our revenue clients. Why do we do that? Anything that our name is on that jacket, we don't want anybody to look at that particular person and think of nothing but, wow, you look sharp. If the person don't get a compliment on our article of clothing, we did not do our job. So what process about making your suits connects to the tradition of making mudcloths? And can you just talk a little bit about uh, what first comes to mind with that and then also whenever you want to go off? Well, you mentioned mudcloth, which is something that I am passionate about modernizing, per se. Mud cloth, it is the most natural fiber fabric you can get in this earth because it's not refined. It's like more like a burlap, but better and finer and more organic than a burlap. Mud cloth is cotton. So think about it. They get it right from the field and then just, you know, process it, roll it. You know what I mean? And... Uh, that mud cloth and our ancestors used to, because of the how special the cloth is and how much work goes in the cloth and how beautiful it is, our ancestor used to frame that. That was our art because it can, is in a, it's a piece of art. That's why we used to frame that. Still today, if you go to some of the countries in Africa, you know, Many other countries, including Senegal, you're going to see they take the cloth, frame it, and put it as a picture, like some of these artworks you see, you know, around here. So to me is like, what is better art? So those, by the way, those mud cloths that I made on my website, those were things my grandfather and grandmother has framed. It was not something I purchased. It was framed in a house. I take the frame. I say, nobody see this. It's an art. What is the best thing in art? Why not make it as a garment that I can wear and wear it out, show it to the world? So my process right now is modernizing the mud cloth, take it off the wall, and put it on, the back, uh, on people's back. So that is my vision right now. That's why that, what you just saw there was a, just an example. You know, The future right now, what the future hold is, our brand is focusing on designing modern clothing with the African fabric. And I'm talking about mud cloth, not this fabric they call the typical African fabric that made in Holland and brought to Africa to sell it to us and say, you can wear that. No, 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 no. This is the African fabric made in Africa, which is the batik, the mud cloth, the kinta cloth, you know, all of those cloth, a special cloth and 
art. If you go to Ghana, what do the chiefs wear? You know, you see them got the, you know, kinta cloth all over big because they celebrate themselves as a royalty. That's what they wear. So that is what Maison de Hajj is focusing on. Bring it to the public so the public can share our culture, our art, you know, and so they can get a piece of Africa and, and feel good about it. The last question that I have, and we're all going to answer it, is what are your fashion do's and don'ts? But Hajj, do you want to take it first? I think I won't say don't, but what I would recommend, this is what my father used to tell us. Before we get out of the house every day, we need to dress and look in the mirror, see do we love what we see? Because when you're going to the public, how do you want people to perceive you? You want people to remember you by meeting you? or not. So my advice would be always dress your best. Dress to impress. People always tell me, you always dress up. Don't you get casual, you know? <laughs> I say, well, life ain't casual. There used to be a lot of these soccer, you know, tournament, you know, play in the uh, arena where you find a bunch of kids who cannot get in. We ain't got money to buy a ticket. So, you know, people just hang around the arena. So whenever the guard is not looking, somebody will sneak in. So we'll stand there. And I remember this, I mean, like yesterday. I was about 14. So we were standing there. I mean, I could afford to get in, but my friends cannot. So I just chose to hang out with my friend. So the, you know, guard, you know, the security guy was, you know, beating people to push them. Get out of here. So make some space. So people who have a ticket can get in. He was beating people until he get to me. He just tell me, come on, move this way. Why? It's because the way I was dressed, you know. The rest of the guy was not that dressed, but I was. But he singled me out, say, excuse me, move this way. And then beating my friend who was standing there with me. So what does that say? Because of that present that I came into that environment, made the impression on the guard, the security guard, for him to single me out and still pushing my friend to get out of the way. That says something to me that, you know. So my point is dress to impress at always. There's no such a thing of casual. You can be casual when you're just relaxing. There's a place for casualness. There's place for not casual. But when you're going out to the world, make sure when you show up, they can recognize you, not just another average Joe. All right, so now we're all just going to share a couple of our own fashion do's and don'ts, correct? Okay. Do's fit the colors that work best for you and don'ts. Do recycle plastic or recycle clothing. Do um, obviously not some crappy plastic cloth. You know, do what is right and feels right on you because that's obviously going to impact your how you see yourself. And obviously, if you're wearing something that's good for the planet, you're going to feel better about yourself. So that's my do's and don'ts. My do's and don'ts, uh, I would say my do is definitely to find who you are first. Don't try to copy, you know what I'm saying, someone that you see or whatever the case is. I feel like fashion really starts with you. And once you really know yourself, 
in the type of person that you are, I feel like fashion will be very easy for you to start picking out certain outfits that you like, certain things that you want to be a part of, instead of just trying to look like this person, because you might not feel like that person when you got them clothes on as well. For me, I would say do it all. I mean, I think it's the only way you can really get to know yourself and know what you feel comfortable in. So don't be scared to like look silly or whatever. Just focus on finding yourself and what feels good on you. And a don't, something similar to what Nikhil said, like don't be phony and like don't try to trick yourself into something that you don't like. My fashion do would be accessories. Always add them. I feel like like a shoes can like make an outfit or like even just jewelry. Like I know I always try to go out of the house like wearing a necklace or just wearing nice earrings. And then back to my don't, neon. I hate neon. <laughs> Only if it's for a themed party, I will let it slide or for Halloween. But if you're like out of your house and you're like Nike lime green shirt, I can't stand it. One thing for me is definitely subcultures, like whether it be like Chicano culture or like in Japanese, there's like Lolita fashion, Garu fashion is kind of making its way back on TikTok. I feel like especially with like rap and hip hop, black people have always been very like unapologetic about it, how they are. And I really like when a lot of people like have grills or a lot of people are able to explore different aspects of themselves with color. I think color is a must because when you look at those subcultures, you can kind of tell who and where they're from. But especially with like Chicano fashion, I really love when women do makeup because it's very like feminine on top, but then it's more relaxed on the bottom with like the dickies or like the polo shirts that they kind of have. And I love when people add jewelry to anything. I think it can kind of elevate something. A fashion don't, I think because I like a lot of color. Don't do too many neutrals. I hope Jake from State Farm is not listening to this because I hate <laughs> khakis. I hate khakis so much. They just look uncomfortable. They don't look good. It's too beige. Like, your pants should not be the same color as the wall. And I feel like having neutrals is fine, like, to build up your basics. But your entire wardrobe being neutrals, like, that's actually kind of scary. Like, you have to have some red. You have to have some <laughs> blue. Like, come on, man. Okay, thank you everyone for listening and thank you Hodge for joining us. It is such a treat and such an honor to hear from you and your incredible story. Um, we hope everyone enjoyed our podcast today. Uh, if you enjoyed this and want to hear more, our classmates also did podcasts on a variety of new- unique topics in the oral tradition sphere. So check those out next. Peace out, guys. Thank you for listening to The Oral Traditions Show. I'm Robert Hanser, professor for The Oral Traditions class. Thank you to Preyas Roy, Kevin Bouchamp, and Hodge Gaye for guesting on this episode. And a special thank you to Columbia College's Collective Impact Series, a provost initiative that addresses community engagement through art making. This show is also made possible through the collaboration of Humanities, History, and Social Sciences Department and the Communication Department at Columbia College Chicago Aaron McCarty, Interim Chair. Thanks to the 2023 Oral Traditions class with assistance from Max Hatlam, production intern for WCRX-FM, for producing this episode. Thanks again for listening to Oral Traditions on WCRX-FM.